I look at real estate and real estate investors as sort of people, personalities. And I look at the mortgage industry as data personalities. If you're asking me the state of the market, we're in a crash in slow motion. If you're owner financing slumlord property, you're a slum note lord. But of those 30% of the people, can you find 20%, 20 out of the 30, can you find those people that really deserve a chance? Absolutely. And if you can, then let me just tell you, you made America better. The real estate world is changing. Opportunity is everywhere. It has never been so easy to connect, share, and bring people together. We're learning from others and finding the very best in ourselves. Challenging our beliefs, overcoming our fears, transforming ourselves so we can transform our business. This is Investor Creator. Eddie, welcome to Investor Creator. Thank you. How are you? Doing very well. I'm excited to have you. So first, I really want to talk about, because I know you have just an extreme amount of uh, insight and experience in the note business and in the real estate world. I mean, what's your thoughts on the economy, what you're seeing right now with the impact of this virus, everything going on? How are you feeling about the real estate and the note business right now? Well, um, I call it a crash in slow motion. John Burns, if you know who he is, who's a very renowned real estate advisor and economist and pretty much Fannie Mae, Freddie Mac, Bank America, every hedge fund. and I mean, every big money source in the United States essentially is his consulting client. And he called it in April a dead cat bounce. He said, I fully expected a dead cat bounce. And he's described it and he described it to the T and, um, you know, a, a pinup inventory and this type of thing. So I think this is where we're at. Let me say that I look at real estate and real estate investors as sort of people, personalities. And I look at the mortgage industry as data personalities, right? And not just the people at the work level. I don't, I don't really believe that the local realtor at the local level, I don't think that they know that mortgage availability chart says 32% of people that could get financing in February can't get financing today. I just don't think they're passing that information around. I will say that I have a call here in a minute with a guy that has a thousand agents underneath him, a thousand. And he is very worried about what I'm saying. And we are trying to make moves to help prepare his agents for where the market's going and to prepare for that. We're going to see a ton of seller financing on in the uh, seconds. We hadn't seen that a huge amount since, well, it started in the 80s, right? People would take over the existing mortgage and then the seller would carry financing. That was because interest rates were 20%. The existing mortgage was a cheaper rate. Sure. It wasn't a sub two back then. It was just an assumption. 
mm-hmm. right? And then the seller would carry interest at say eight or 10 or 12% interest, but that's way cheaper than 20% interest. So we saw this huge insurgence of people that carried low interest rate, lower than the market financing. Then when subprime lending got so hot, we saw a ton of seller financing then. And that was pretty simple. That was because they couldn't get mortgage insurance. They weren't qualified. They had terrible credit. Their debt income didn't work. And so the seller would carry a second in lieu of mortgage insurance, right? Because they could get a traditional mortgage, but the mortgage insurance company wouldn't write the loan. And then the mortgage industry got so crazy, they were just writing seconds and all kinds of stuff. And they didn't even need to have seller financing. So we're going to see a lot of seller financing fill the gap. You know, the average interest rate now for a jumbo loan, I mean, the average loan to value for a jumbo loan right now is like 65%. You do realize that, right? It's amazing. So we're going to see a huge need for seller financing. But most people that are in real estate today, mortgage brokers, about 75% of the mortgage industry at the moment is refis. So all this, I can't, you know, now the mortgage processing time is like you close, you're going to close in two and a half months, so to speak, right? But that's refi business. And it's not a new purchase business. And yes, realtors are busy. And yes, the mortgage industry is busy making new loans for these realtors. But let's be fair about it. They're just financing the perfect. You know, the average FICO score now for somebody to originate a mortgage is like 740. 740, the average. So I ask you a question, Brad. You're a super seasoned guy. You and I have had a lot of history with some of the same people. Mm-hmm. And you look at the market and where the market is and how the market is trending. What happens to the average wholesaler? Okay. Now we understand that wholesaling really became a thing because of the hedge funds, right? The hedge funds came along around 2010, 11, 12, and they had a pocket full of money. We're talking about hundreds of millions. And they wanted to buy REO property, and they realized they didn't have the machine to go acquire that level of properties. So they started going into these masterminds, the ones that I hang out at, Collective Genius and Boardroom and Investor Field. They started going into these masterminds. I was in Collective Genius since around 2011. Mm -hmm. And they came in there and they says, guys, you have the horsepower to go find 150 houses a year. What if we just took your inventory off your hands and you didn't have to rehab it? And they're like, oh, what? Tell me more about that. So they did. And so they really industrialized how the real estate investor could do business because the whole real estate investor could just flip his contract. Up until then, every seasoned real estate investor you and I knew, you flip your contract for about 3,000 bucks. I mean, nobody would pay you a ton of money to go flip your contract, right? It just, the market wouldn't pay for it. The old season right. landlord, so to speak. Sure. So then all of a sudden, about the time that the hedge fund started tailing off and quit buying so many houses, which is around 2015, then all of a sudden we got this TV network, HGTV, and became America's new pastime. Oh, God, my God, we're going to go rehab houses and fix up houses, which you and I look at it and go, oh, my God. It gives me anxiety to watch that TV show. Like, I literally <laughs> cannot do it. I was at the dentist the other day. I said, please turn that off. They're so fun, though. They make it look like we just, well, we tore out. They don't ever tell the stuff that you and I've lived. Right? Yeah, right. yeah. It's just like decorating. That's what, that's the guy, the biggest amateur in real estate. 
is the guy that the biggest real estate investors are flipping to today. That's who it is. Yeah, 100%. Let me just tell you something. He's not a hedge fund. He's not made of money, okay? He is buying to fix and rent, or he's buying to fix and resell. His business model is dependent on mortgage financing. Right. Right? And I'll bet you my best pair of Texas cowboy boots that he don't know that the mortgage availability chart has done this, right? And so if you're asking me the state of the market, we're in a crash in slow motion. So with that, you know, being that we're owner finance people, you know, we don't really march to the same drum that the retail people do. So for me, it seems like a tremendous opportunity. So when, you know, I started buying in 2010 and before that I was a real estate agent for five years. And I think now, gosh, if I had just bought everything in 2010 and held it, then there was almost no price that was too high based on what happened, you know, with what's going on. And I don't know like what percentage will decline or, or what those numbers look like, but I feel like there's a tremendous opportunity that's coming. And I hate to say it that way because it sounds opportunistic. There's going to be a lot of hurting people. And I'm not trying to say that, but at the same time, if there's going to be hurting people, they need help. And so if we can help them, then it's, I feel like our duty to do so. I don't know that the market is going to be necessarily bad for us, but what do you feel about it on the owner finance side? Well, I've made all my wealth in black swan markets. Yeah. Right. I mean, I started in 1980, interest rates were 20%. Every realtor and home builder thought they were going broke. I'm walking in, I'm 20 years old and I'm walking into a realtor's office to get them to go stir up a list of clients that have been forced to carry seller financing because of high interest rates. Right. And they're shaking because they feel like they're going broke. And I'm thinking this is a bonanza, right? My wife and I marry in 82. We moved from Mississippi where I started in oat business with my father-in-law and moved to Texas. And by 1986, the market blows up and it's terrible black swan market. And all of a sudden the same thing. Well, and, and you know, all, every bank, every funding source, every whatever to go make loans was out of business. That's when I first met your old friend, you're my old friend, Manny Harris. Right. Right. And once again, you know, I grew my net worth double every year in those black swan markets. Now, my net worth wasn't exactly in that era what it would be today. But when people look in terms of how could I literally double my net worth in a year, it's not in the good market. It's not in our business. Let me say this about all of real estate investing. All of real estate investing is a fringe business based on the drama that traditional real estate can't solve. Mm -hmm. If every realtor could solve every problem in America, trust me, we would never heard of flipping a house, right? If every realtor, every mortgage lender, every traditional person in real estate, if they could solve every real estate problem, we wouldn't be in existence. We're in existence to solve problems that traditional real estate can't solve. The problem's just going to be bigger. Mm -hmm. yep. That's how I look at it. It's so funny to me, even today, people still think, well, gosh, why is there a need for real estate investors? And it's like, if you've ever dealt with a motivated seller that, I mean, we had one in Las Vegas not long ago where the woman had been through a divorce, was three payments behind, she owed roughly what the property was worth, and she just had a heart attack. And so like, we have some highly motivating factors that necessitate, like she has to sell this thing yesterday versus 
waiting on the market. She'd actually tried to put it on the market and couldn't move it. You know, and we see that often as well. So it's amazing to me sometimes that people still don't understand what you just said, that we're not the bread and butter of the real estate market, but we operate in the gray areas, you know, where there's not an easy solution for people. So I would say that probably of the top 500 house buyers in the market, Note school, either them coming to a class or at least me going to a mastermind and presenting, at least 350 of them have come in my path in the last year. Mm-hmm. Now, this was before the virus, right? Some of it was. Sure. And the reason I did it was, is they would go in these masterminds and I'd sit there and listen to them. And they're like, okay, we make 20 offers. We get one house accepted. And I'd go, I think, my God, that's a 95% failure rate. In other words, they were making cash offers and one out of 20 would take the offer. Mm -hmm. And I would say, why don't you go buy on terms? And you got to understand, most of the guys that are the highest volume guys in the business today, they were doing something else in 2005. right? I don't mean there's not some old dogs in the business, but of those top 500 guys, most of them are ninja marketers and they're ninja psychologists at the closing table. That's what they are. They are better than any house buyer that ever existed in 2000. I mean, they are excessively more scientific in those areas than any house buyer you and I ever knew, right? But creative financing hasn't been a thing. Right. Because they came into a market where there was a fever to buy real estate. You could go find anything and put it in a contract and flip it to, let's just say, a bigger fool than you. Do you think that people are going to move more towards the owner finance model or will they just get out of it completely? Because there's not many people that teach owner finance and notes and partials and all the stuff that we do. Well, if you've lived through four decades of seeing black swan markets, yes, a lot of people will shift. There's too many real estate investors in the market today, right? Yeah. There's not enough market. That's why their margins are shrinking, right? Because it's fashionable right? It's in style. And so the margins that real estate investors make or the kind or what you or the people that coached and guided you in years past or the people that influenced me in years past, you know, Ken D'Angelo, the guy that found an home investor, 65 cents on the dollar is what we pay for a house. 65% of as is value. That's what you pay. Mm-hmm. You don't, that's it. That's, that was the number. I'm telling you, I know I was, I spent thousands of hours with the guy. And so now all of a sudden, that number today seems completely unrealistic, but yet it just shows you the competitiveness of the market. So these real estate investors started saying, okay, if I'm good enough to go put an asset under contract, then we can go pay the other side. So let me say this. I'll make a wild prediction, right? Four times the amount of seller financing. I believe that if the market this year, which created about 100,000 owner, well, 2019, about in 2019, about 100,000 seller finance transactions were created nationwide, about 100,000. You know, it's some of them are unrecorded because they're land contracts. So you can't exactly detect it, but you're just kind of feeling for it. That's fairly close, 100 to 110,000. Could that number grow to 500,000 by 21 in the year of 21? Absolutely. Because seller financing fills the void conventional lending doesn't fill. Now, your and I's job is this. 
What we don't want people to do is to go out and create Wild West seller financing, right? They need to learn enough. They don't need to know exactly what we know, but they need to know enough to understand that the purpose in seller financing is to gain a customer for your bank. The purpose of seller financing is not to get rid of your property. Mm -hmm. So let's go through that. I mean, what's some underwriting standards that you feel people miss whenever they're creating financing? First of all, I think they start out with bad advertising. Okay. I've bought a thousand portfolios of seller finance notes, a thousand portfolios means that I've dealt with a lot of real estate investors that tried seller financing in a lot of different ways. Lord knows I've looked at probably 6,000 portfolios. And I've ridden, I've made literally thousands of field trips where I land somewhere, I ride around, go to the guy's office, ride around in the car. He's selling land. He's selling mobile home and land. He's selling houses. He's a home builder and he's selling brand new houses with seller financing in certain markets, niche markets. Mm -hmm. And I would, you know, I'd see his yard sign and I'd say, well, how do you advertise and want to do? And let me tell you what I finally figured out. And this took me way too long. It shows you I'm not very smart. Every one of them would advertise saying seller financing. Some of them would even do the dumb stuff and say seller financing, no banks or seller financing, you know, no qualifying. Well, who is going to call you? Well, if you were renting a house, would you dare think of running an ad and say, if you've been evicted, call me, I'll be your new landlord? Right. I, I get the point. Yeah. That's, that's ridiculous. And so what I then started realizing is that there would be a pattern. There would be a high volume guy and it could be a guy in San Antonio or Fayetteville, North Carolina, or Phoenix, or wherever. The guys that seller financed a lot. And I would sit down with them, and they'd own a portfolio of notes, and I would work backwards in trying to help them create better notes for the future, right? And then they would say, well, you don't understand our customer. I've heard that 10,000 times. You don't understand our customer, Eddie. You live in Dallas. You don't understand how people are over in Birmingham, or you don't understand how people are in so-and-so. And then I started realizing is, is they were advertising for a demographic and exactly who they were advertising for would show up. They had no credit or bad credit and they had $1,500 down. Hmm. And so I said, well, why don't you do this? Why don't you run an ad asking for who you're looking for? And they're like, what do you mean? I said, like, uh, don't even put seller financing in your ad. Seller financing resonates as non-qualifying loan. Private financing for deserving buyers with large down payment. Mm, I like that. And then they go, oh my God. And I said, just split advertise it. You run your ads and run my ads and try it for three months and tell me if you found a different customer. Or if you did that and you're Mitch Steven, my dear friend in San Antonio, who's now done 3,000 deals. Great guy. Yeah. He went, he went from an average down payment of 1,500 to 10,000, mm -hmm. literally. And won't take less than 10,000 now. Now that's in the price band of house he's selling. But let me ask you a question. What do you think the average down payment is of somebody that is buying a new house? And not today, not in the virus, 
but in 2019, what do you think the average down payment is? I'm not sure. What is it? What if I told you 14%? Really? I'd be surprised by that. I got mortgage data to show it. Yeah. Interesting. So people convince themselves that they're looking for a guy with 5% down and injured credit. And I say, Right now, I've always called our buyer the penalty box buyer, kind of a hockey term, right? He's not a bum. He's just, there's some reason that he has fell off the grid of what is traditionally mortgage financeable. We think in terms of a lot of self-employed, or we think in terms of people that earn commissions or bonuses or something where they really are, not, not that they're bad credit, Right. Not that there are some sad story that just we find out later they habitually have problems with paying people back. Right. We've all know that. Oh, yes. Yes. But what we find is just represent this as a ball. This is how many people can get a conventional mortgage. This was January 2020. Today, this ball is this big. Mm -hmm. I was really surprised. I can't remember if it was Chase or if it was Fargo when they said, look, 700 minimum credit score, 20% down minimum on FHA. And I was thinking, oh my goodness, like you might as well just wave a banner that says we're not lending right now. And this is right after the virus hit maybe in April. What the lenders are worried about is they're worried about what's called agency buybacks. They don't care what Fannie Mae's criteria is. They don't care what FHA's criteria is. They sell that loan and it doesn't fit. It doesn't then later perform, or there's some glitch with that customer, whoever they sold it to that, you know, it's, they're called GSE loans, right? And so whatever format they sold it through, it's called an agency buyback, right? They got to go buy the loan back. They made the loan and they made a fee when they sold it. Now, all of a sudden they got it under contract. They got to go buy it back. That's the bomb they're worried about that most people don't even know exist. So they called it the COVID overlay. This is the underwriting criteria that banks and mortgage companies had that was a different criteria than Fannie or Freddie's underwriting. The mm. COVID overlay, it became a mortgage term. Yeah. Interesting. So what do you think the banks are going to do in the mid to, to long term? Say like the next five years. So are we going to see a tightening, you feel? Because I know you have a, a lot of contacts when it comes to the banking world. So what's everybody saying? Like, what's a short, medium to long term in the next five years look like in terms well, of? The Mortgage Bankers Association has a definitive term that they call credit availability, right? And there's a chart that they generate. They're usually, honestly, are almost about a month behind. But I've got the one through July. And... Uh, and it's gone up a little bit. So now today, the number is about 32% of the people that could get a mortgage in February can't get a mortgage in August. Wow. About 32%. Okay. So they've already made significant adjustments. And what's interesting is, is, you know, it's not on CNN. It's not on Fox. So I don't care what your political persuasion is. Sure. I believe that NAR, and I've got no reason to go become their new target, but they've done a good job of NAR as National Association of Realtors. They've done a good job of packaging the messaging. And the average person that is dealing in real estate thinks that this little 
COVID thing, that's just a little speed bump, right? It's just a little speed bump. Let me tell you two things that I, I'm taking some risk here today, right? I could safety up, right? Mm-hmm. But I think if you're a visionary, and that's my PI profile, right? And part of what I think gives me a vision is I think I'm really the Walter Cronkite. I don't think I have to invent the news. I just think I have to know what news is happening and then determine how that looks. Let me tell you something. We don't know what landlords are made of yet because their tenants that have troubles have been making payments with government subsidy money. Mm. We don't, we have no idea what the real world looks like. Statistically, we are told that landlords have two and a half times greater impact from the virus than people that live in a house. Well, that's the rent collections from the savvy real estate investors I know, they haven't seen much of an impact yet. They are concerned if they're savvy. So I say that there's 30, was there 37% of every residential door is now a rental? 37% of every residential door is a rental, okay? How many of those are professional landlords and how many of those are amateur landlords, okay? And how many of them have enough equity that if they hit the panic button, they can go sell for something? Hmm? It's a giant number, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, for sure. Now let's go on the other side. There's 5 million people in forbearance, Forbearance means it's like a timeout card. You're not making your mortgage payment. And by the way, they aren't paying their taxes and insurance. Their lenders are getting to make that payment for them as well. There's 5 million loans. <laughs> you, get, you get how big a number this is? That's huge. 5 million loans in forbearance. And we're riding along. And let me just tell you something. That's going to come home to roost. There's one point. 9 million loans that aren't in forbearance that are 90 days delinquent, according to the latest chart I saw. Let me tell you something. If you think this doesn't smell like a crash in slow motion, I don't know where you're getting your information from. And and that 100% makes sense. Let's talk about the opportunity. So I would say that you can spot opportunity quicker than most because you've seen these kinds of markets more than most. And you're 100% right, man. It seems like everybody's a wholesaler or they're fix and flipper and they've been in the business five years. Well, it's been pretty tough to not make money the past five years. Like a lot of stupid, stupid decisions have been covered up through appreciation. So where do you think the some of the best opportunity is going to be in the coming market? Honestly, if I were a hotshot real estate investor, I would target buying rental properties from landlords and getting them to owner finance them. That, that would be my number one target. It's a gigantic target. There's 18 million more rental property doors than there were in 2010. There, You or I or you and I and our best hundred buddy can't go buy the inventory. Right. right? It's huge. And I believe this is just a wild guess, but I'm around a fairly sophisticated audience on a regular basis, I believe that at least 40% of the people that own a rental property, if you ask them, they wouldn't go buy a next one. They're not a happy landlord. And so I believe that that's a very motivated seller. I tell people right now, I believe that we've entered into a harvest period. Okay. In 10 year cycles, there's maintenance periods that says we can continue to do business and continue to have, you know, wealth that we're growing and stuff. And then there's a harvest period. Now, I believe that we've now entered into a gigantic harvest period. 
does real estate values drop as much as residential real estate values drop as much as they did in 2008? I think in many markets, no. Okay. But I think that for us to think with all the statistics that we've just been discussing, and I didn't make up any of these stats, right? With all the statistics we've been discussing, we have got to fall into in a National Association of Realtors, National Home Builders Association, Fannie Mae, Freddie Mac, CoreLogic, all have, Freddie Mac did a, a webinar in late June and everyone on prediction for 20 and 21 was calling for a decline in real estate values. Now, for somebody looking, watching this podcast today, they're going, oh my God, this old man's crazy, right? You didn't see the summer we just saw. Well, that's what they predicted, okay? So let me just say this, that I believe that right now we have the window of opportunity to deal in a superior asset class. One of the things that I've tried to teach people in my best way ever is don't go deal in worthless real estate and think owner financing, it's a good strategy, right? If you're owner financing slumlord property, you're a slum note lord. That sucks. I've already looked at thousands of portfolios like that. If you're dealing in junk land that's undesirable and nobody wants it and you think you're going to owner finance it, let me just tell you something. It won't model. It won't be good to you long-term. Correct. Yeah, I 100% agree. So deal in good asset property. So I live here in Dallas-Fort Worth. So let me give you a little bit of a scale, okay? So the median priced house here in Dallas-Fort Worth is about 185,000 bucks. I think the bottom end in Dallas-Fort Worth is around 110 or 120,000. I think the top end's about 360, okay? Like dealing in super high dollar properties is just a percentage of people that need that house and the site, the what can go wrong and stuff. It's just generally not a market I've seen people really excel at. Mm-hmm. Right. So I think deal in the best medium market. And I think that if you're looking at it and you're thinking like, I think you and I are thinking, Brad, if somebody's sitting out there looking at it, they're going, wow. If Eddie's even not even close to right, maybe he's exaggerating, which I'm not. Only 25% of people that can't get a mortgage today that could get one in January. That looks like a gigantic pool of potential people that are good. They're just not absolutely perfect. And mortgage lending has somehow left them behind. And I think if you're looking at that, you just define a crazy, gigantic market that seller financing can fill a gap. It's amazing to me. I mean, even in the best of times, like we've had the past four or five years, owner financing works and it works. I mean, we sell houses faster than the fix and flip model for more money. We get bigger down payments than a wholesaler can get. And so I really don't see the upside of either model, frankly. Although I've done the HGTV style rehabs before, you know, six or seven years ago, because I thought, well, that's just the next step, you know, and it's just like, well, it just didn't, it didn't suit my personality number one, but it's far less profitable because it just takes so long and so many headaches to get those deals to market. But, you know, it's funny because I think the owner finance model is the only residential model that actually works better during the recession. And that's something Mitch and I have talked about. It's like, I hate to say that we're recession proof because I think that a lot of people that think that they're foolproof in every way, that's a pretty dangerous position to be in. But if we're in a situation where owner financing works the worst the market gets in the retail side, it's tough to get hurt. Do you feel the same way? 
I can tell you this with a thousand percent integrity, that black swan markets that I've lived through, which was 1980, 86, 98, 2001, the 9-11, 2008, though I've already lived through those black swan markets that I can go back and look at my income and my net worth, not just my income today, but net worth grown tomorrow. And they doubled post those markets. So people ask me what I think is going to happen. I'm saying, I don't know, except I'm going to double my net worth. So the best days are ahead. For me, there's no doubt. And that's just such a, a safe position. People are just so scared of markets. In the owner finance world, we don't have to be afraid of markets anymore. It's a great position. Let me, let me say this. I have a heart for people doing owner financing that will be good to them. There are people that go out there and create owner financing because it's going to become the thing. And you and I know they're not going to do it well. Right. They're going to think they're growing their net worth, but they're creating loans that don't perform with an outstanding statistic. Right. It's, it's not a good outstanding statistic. So I think that the challenge is just to say, let's slow down just a little bit and learn how to do it correctly, and it'll be great for you. And by the way, let me give you a ri- the biggest plus of all. What about those 30% of people that can't get a mortgage today? Do they deserve home ownership? I mean, legitimately, have they got good credit? Do they have a good job? Are they good citizens? I mean, do they really deserve home ownership? I'm not talking about people that we can clearly say, we know that they're not home ownership candidates. But of those 30% of the people, can you find 20%, 20 out of the 30, can you find those people that really deserve a chance? Absolutely. And if you can, then let me just tell you, you made America better because you provided homeownership to people that otherwise couldn't get it. And that's the truth. I don't think we could end on a better note than that. Eddie, I appreciate you being with us. For those that are interested in you and your training, what you have going on, where can they find you? So I built a good little landing page for your audience. I thought it was a good fit for them. And it's very simple. It's just noteschool.com forward slash get started. I wrote about a 50 page book. It's a little download ebook and it is post COVID book. So it is very relevant, very current. I talk about different strategies in buying property and using owner financing. It's about five chapters. And I would say that it's not a long read, but it should be interesting enough to keep you going. And then I'm going to give you some opportunity to progress with a little workshop with us where we just have case studies and beat it up. That sounds great. Guys, we'll put that in the show notes for you. If you guys have any questions, then reach out to us, brad at bradsmoment.com. Eddie, again, appreciate you being with us. A lot of fun. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.